Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Speech Path Pod. My name is Aidan Osborne, speech pathologist, and I'll be your host. And for this first interview, very excited to have Brooke Bielman. Brooke is a full-time member of Tim's Medical, a part-time graduate school instructor, a board member for the nonprofit Dysphagia Outreach Project, a participant in the 2023 ASHA Leadership Development Program, and serves patients in the acute care and inpatient rehab settings. She is the recipient of the ASHA ACE Award, co-founder of Servant Leadership, and a member of SIG13. Brooke has presented at the state and national levels, has been a guest on the podcast Understanding Dysphagia and First Bite, and has been the host and guest speaker for continuing education webinars. Brooke is passionate about improving clinician access to resources for evidence-based practice and leadership development. And just a quick disclaimer before we begin, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the institutions they represent. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. How's it going, Brooke? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to record an episode of the podcast. To just get things started, would you mind introducing yourself, kind of talking about your start in this field and, and where you're at now? Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me. I have actually known since the age of about 16 that I wanted to be a speech pathologist working with people with dysphagia after my grandma, who was a nurse had several strokes and developed dysphagia and aphasia and other issues herself. And so going to college, I knew that I wanted to be a a speech pathologist. And my career has kind of evolved over the years based on a couple of different things. But I really love this field and I have experience in a lot of different areas, including acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient and skilled nursing. And I've also dabbled in other facets of healthcare, including business, medical education, content creation, and Um, other avenues. So most recently, I was on an oncology leadership team for a medical device company, really working on national awareness about head and neck cancer, as well as um, assisting in recruitment and development of a randomized control trial study. And now this year, I'm super excited to be on the leadership team at Tim's Medical, focusing on swelling diagnostics, so fees and MBS, and working with their team to help, uh, again, on the education side, so marketing, education, and clinical collaborations, and am back involved in clinical practice and acute care, which I'm really excited about, at the hospital that I was originally at, working as the oncology district lead. So it's all kind of came full circle, and really excited uh, at where my career is right now and excited to be on the podcast. You've definitely been busy and I've kind of followed along over the years with various things that you've posted and been involved with online. So it's really kind of great to, to see everything that you're you're doing now and congrats on the, the new position as well. I meant to say that earlier. <laughs> so yeah, maybe let's talk a little bit then about, you know, SLP's role in head neck cancer why you're, you know, particularly interested in that. Definitely. So I mentioned, you know, that I knew right away that I wanted to be a speech pathologist and my desire and passion to become involved in the head neck space really actually began in graduate school. One of my best friends and I saw that there was a conference at MD Anderson in, in Houston, specifically looking at working with patients with total laryngectomy. So we decided to road trip down to Houston. It was like a 10-hour drive to take this course. And long story short, I was starstruck getting to meet Jan Lewin and Brad Smith. And that really honestly changed the trajectory of my career. Whereas before I thought I'm going to be an acute care SLP. That's my you know end goal, dream position. 
after leaving that course, I was like, I want to do that. How do I do that when I grow up, when I get out of school, right? So um, came back from the course. And then, of course, if you followed me on social media at all, you probably have seen that I applied for over 100 positions trying to find a medical position that did have both that acute care and um, oncology experience. And so I landed in Kansas City, Missouri, in a position that allowed the opportunity for both. It was a float position, acute care and outpatient rehab with development of inpatient inpatient rehab unit. So that's kind of full circle how it came about. If you've ever built a program, you know that it can be time consuming. So initially I wasn't doing just, you know, only head neck cancer because we were getting the program developed and whatnot. But then it ended up becoming so busy that that was the main patient population that I was seeing in the outpatient setting. And my passion for working with that patient population has never left. So that's kind of the background on why I wanted to get involved with this patient population. Okay. Yeah. No, I think there's a, a couple different things there. I think one, yeah, I had a, a somewhat similar experience with my fellowship. I didn't necessarily apply to a hundred, but it was over 20 and I sort of ended up just going where I got accepted, which was a little, little bit um, scary in, especially cause it was right when COVID hit and it was kind of moving across the country was very intimidating, but um, I got a very, very, I received great training, great supervision, lots of collaboration with, you know, really um, brilliant SLPs. And that really set me up um, well in, in my career. So I think one point for anyone listening to is that definitely seek out those positions. And I, I've seen you say that before, you know, don't accept something that you're not excited about, because you definitely can find those positions that will uh, challenge you and also give you a really good opportunity to grow, develop programs, those kind of things. Yeah. And, and similarly as well, um, I, through my fellowship and other positions that I've had, really became interested with the head neck cancer population, along with laryngectomy patients. It's a very unique population and it, working with them um, is very rewarding, but it can also be very difficult at times too, because, you know, among the various different patient populations that we work with, it can be so difficult seeing people going through these times where, you know, it's hard for them to get to the next day, you know, whether that's with eating, drinking, being difficult, or just really, really struggling through treatment. And you really have to be there to support them um, in, in a variety of ways. And I think part of that comes with, you know, some of this education early on in the process of after they get that diagnosis of head and neck cancer. So maybe could we talk a little bit about what some of the involvement for SLPs, you know, historically was for head and neck cancer, and then what that transition has looked like over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. So I can tell you, you know, from a personal experience, just diving into the literature and, and talking with clinicians across the country, kind of what our field from my perspective has evolved to. So, you know, I would say going back 10 years ago or so, Obviously, we've had literature out there about the importance of the speech pathologist um, in the evaluation and treatment of these patients, right? So it's not that that's a new a new revelation. I think what's newer is really our role in lymphedema and how lymphedema is related to what we do as speech pathologists. So you know, dysphagia, voice, airway management, etc. Um, so I would say. You know, when I first got into the field of speech pathology and was looking at working with this patient population, what I was seeing in the literature and online was, one, the importance of a baseline instrumental evaluation, specifically MBS, was the one that I continuously saw in the literature. And then, of course, you know, seeing the patient throughout treatment for both 
swallowing exercises and oral intake. And then, of course, um, you know, doing another instrumental evaluation as needed after treatment. Um, and, and I say as needed because it's going to be dependent upon, you know, patient, how the patient is doing after treatment when you would, would do that study. That being said, I was not seeing anything really in the literature about manual work. So whether you call that myofascial release or manual lymphatic drainage, I wasn't really seeing a lot in the literature at that time about us utilizing that, right? So to kind of recircle back to your original question, I would say it was more common, at least from my perspective, about 10 years ago to really focus more on the instrumental evaluations and swallowing exercises and oral intake, which again, as we know, these are very, very crucial aspects of dysphagia management. And then of course, the leaders in head and neck cancer, MD Anderson, they were talking about lymphedema, specifically measurements, external measurements, etc. But at least from what I was seeing, again, like I said, from my perspective at this time, about six years ago, um, there wasn't a lot of conversation, at least online and in like speech support groups about really our role as speech pathologists in lymphatic management, other than what we were kind of seeing from MD Anderson, which like I said, they are definitely the leaders in that. So that's kind of where my story, I guess, begins with this whole conversation. um, Because Sorry to kind of segue into this, but I, like I mentioned, wanted to develop a proactive program for people with head and neck cancer. And um, again, as I mentioned earlier, if you've started a program, you know, it can kind of take time, right? Because you need to get the whole team to understand the why behind it and then the how. And so the program initially was baseline instrumental evaluations. Like I said, that was well documented in the literature. We really need to get Baseline imaging, because these patients could already have dysphagia, right, at the time of cancer diagnosis, whether it's from the cancer itself or from something else. So is it truly a baseline? Eh. (laughs) But it's a baseline, right, before they go through treatment. And then, of course, like I mentioned, the exercises and oral intake during treatment. So got that started, and that was going, I'll say, okay, it was going decent. And I say it that way because, you know, making sure that patients were actually referred, that was like a big challenge, right? So as we were kind of getting this ramped up and patients were coming in that had gotten missed before this program was developed, so they were coming in a year to year and a half after, I was getting patients with trismus and fibrosis. And to be honest with you, I had no idea how to to treat that. And so, you know, talking with other SLPs who had been in the field much longer than myself, some opinions were this is, you know, referred to as, quote, woody neck syndrome or frozen neck syndrome, and there's not a lot we can do for it. Other people said, you know, we need to do manual techniques. And so in in specifically looking at trismus, we had a physical therapist on our team who specialized in in jaw work. So I had referred some of the patients to her, but she didn't necessarily want to take head neck cancer on her caseload. So as I mentioned, when you and I were kind of talking before recording, the hospital system that I was in Like I mentioned, I'm in Kansas City, but where the hospital is, we pull from a wide kind of rural area. So there wasn't necessarily anybody else I could refer the patients to. So I ended up getting on a plane and going and getting trained in manual work from a physical therapist, Walt Fritz, specifically asking him quite a lot of questions about working with this patient population. So when I came back, I was able to at least provide that. And then around that time, we hired an occupational therapist who is also a certified lymphedema therapist. So my kind of realization that part of this was related to the lymphatic system really came from working with her and by a chance meeting with a representative from a medical device company who offered me a free Jimmy John sandwich. So that's kind of 
Uh, the funny aspect of this, because I just got invited as kind of an afterthought because somebody canceled and there was an extra sandwich. So I'm like, sure, I'll sit in and, and hear what you have to say about lymphedema, not thinking that it had anything to do with me. And then it was that kind of, oh my God, moment of really realizing that all of my patients had lymphedema. So I'm going to pause there because that was kind of a lot of information. But um, but yeah, that's kind of where my story begins. <laughs> And, and I, I think with that, you know, just to, for my own um, understanding, I think the, the shift has been from this more reactive approach to some of the dysphagia related to radiation um, and, and just going through this head neck cancer process. But then also thinking about, you know, what is the actual pathophysiology for dysphagia in this patient population? And if we're not treating what is actually causing some of these deficits, um, like you alluded to with some of the fibrosis and what some of the literature talks about with this continuum of, um, you know, lymphedema to eventually fibrosis or concomitant at the same time, you know, it, it's no surprise that we have these people with uh, these patients with dysphagia years on or even year one, two, three afterwards, that's not necessarily getting any better. Yeah. And I think um, you hit the nail on the head when you said identifying and treating the pathophysiology because like I said, you know, I was doing initially what I knew to do based on the literature review and just being honest, I didn't have a lot of mentorship at the time. And luckily at that time, more, um, you know, support groups and things like that for speech pathologists were coming out. So luckily I was able to connect with Dr. Kelly Salmon, who's absolutely incredible and one of my good friends. But prior to that, I was just kind of swimming in the dark like many of us are. And so I, like I said, was doing more traditional therapy, you know, exercises, oral intake. Fun fact, I used to competitively compete in powerlifting. So I, you know, obviously understood the law of specificity and and progressive overload and whatnot. And then additionally took um, MDTP. And so obviously was incorporating those things, but oftentimes my patients would still hit a plateau. And so I, and my Kind of another pivotal moment was um, coming into my office one day. I had a, a patient who I had to work with for about a year and a half. And I mean, this guy, I had done everything I knew to do. And he just really had only minimal improvement. Under fluoro, you could see that he still had severe dysphagia, specifically with upper esophageal uh, function. And um, so I walked into my office one Monday and the phone was ringing. And I answered and he was on the other other line. And he told me he was going to take his own life. And he was just so fed up with dysphagia. And additionally, he had very limited speech intelligibility because his tongue was so fibrotic. And, you know, I had referred him for second opinions at other places in the city. And, you know, and again, that probably had SLPs that were more experienced than myself. And um, everyone kind of said the same thing. This is unfortunately your new normal. And receiving that phone call from him and having to call 911 um, was just like, it's something that I'll never forget. And I was like, there has to be something more. Like, I am missing something. And it's my responsibility to figure out what, what it is. Like, what am I missing? And so, like I said, that, then at that time is when I went and got trained by Walt Fritz and then started to understand the correlation between lymphatics and the acute and chronic issues that these patients experience. And I'm happy to say that that patient actually was 
able to make significant improvement. Like I have external photos of him three months apart that are, he looks like a different person. Um, and he went from being completely peg dependent for a year and a half, speech intelligibility of about 50% to all nutrition, hydration, orally, and speech intelligibility of 75%. So, you know, it's, it was very intense therapy for him to get him to that point. But really, like I said, that was the pivotal moment for me that there has to be something more in regards to pathophysiology that I was missing. And in my opinion, it it was the lymphatics. And so at that time, then we started incorporating more endoscopic studies into our um, protocol. And we're really seeing those anatomical changes over time, which again, lended me to believe that this is a really key component to what we do, whether we are actually the ones treating it, or we're advocating for Um, you know, certified lymphedema therapist to be intervening. And I think maybe it would be good for us just to talk a little bit too um, about kind of what this internal and or external lymphedema looks like, how that's measured just for someone who's not necessarily um, well-versed in in this area. So if you wouldn't mind then talking maybe about the the Patterson scale, the external measurements for lymphedema, just briefly how that's, um, how, how we measure that. Yeah, for sure. So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but the team at MD Anderson came up with an external measurement scale. So that was available, like I said, at that time. However, one of the things that I noticed um, when I was doing these baseline MBS studies and then post-treatment MBS studies were uh, what I believe to be internal changes. And so I collaborated with the radiologist and the certified lymphedema therapist to ask them, you know, do you think that this is um, related to the lymphatic system, specifically looking at the submental space, the epiglottis, and the posterior pharyngeal wall? Um, and we all kind of have the same consensus that, yes, we believe this to be lymphatic-related. So like I mentioned, MD Anderson does have their external scale for rating external lymphedema. But more recently, uh, a scale that's come out is the revised Patterson scale. So I will note that this isn't specifically – they don't specifically say – we're rating internal lymphedema, they say edema. However, you know, many people are utilizing the scale to assess these internal changes that we're seeing with edema. So it's it's really awesome if you haven't seen it before. It gives you images to help you uh, make ratings compared to the images of your patient of the anatomical site. So um, I like it for that reason. I will say when you dive into the lymphatic literature, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, Aiden, that In the lymphatic literature, we see that there's a progression uh, across stages. So if you'll talk to a CLT, you know, they'll say, well, lymphedema is chronic and progressive, so it can progress to fibrosis. So if you do start to utilize the revised Patterson scale and you're kind of utilizing it to look at lymphedema, I would recommend just like diving into the lymphatic literature to check out how they talk about the progression from swelling to fibrosis because what you'll often see in the literature is that, you know, people will talk about edema and how internal edema, quote, regresses over time. And I would say that's where MBS and fees are very, very important, you know, using both for this patient population. Because while yes, maybe you're seeing a reduction in edema, when you scope the patient, you'll see maybe, uh, you know, yes, there's less swelling, but there's more of this appearance of fibrosis. So um, that's the only thing I would say, you know, for anybody interested in learning more to kind of look at all of those things. I do love the revised Patterson scale, like I said, because it does give you really nice visuals um, that helps you make those ratings. But then of course, like I said, diving into the lymph literature and um, I really recommend collaborating with PT and OT. That's where I've learned a lot of information about the lymphatic system because 
uh, oftentimes they specialize in it. Um, so they can really talk a lot about it's the system and then we can apply what we know about swallowing in the airway. Yeah. And, and I think this is somewhat tangential, but related that, you know, in that continuum of uh, the, the edema to fibrosis, you know, maybe with that reduction in the edema, the patient regains some, some degree of swallowing function. But unfortunately, then I've seen patients over the last couple of years who had a, you know, remote history of head and neck cancer radiation, you know, 10, 15 years plus, um, they're fine. By fine, I mean functional, maybe not, you know, physiologically okay with the swallow, but no, you know, significant health outcomes. However, later in life, kind of those later decades, they have some kind of, I'll call it sentinel event, either another surgery, some kind of illness, um, systemic disease, that they, they have very little of that reserve within their swallow function to, um, you know, accept any of that deterioration. And so unfortunately, then where it might have been just, you know, a, a minuscule uh, impact on the swallow because of that remote history that was never, we'll say, like appropriately treated or treated, um, you know, as well as it could have been, because we just didn't know, um, they're unfortunately in a much, much worse place. You know, to, to your point, I think we're getting more information now about the lymphatic system. Um, actually, a friend of mine just sent me an article that just came out about the correlation between Alzheimer's and the lymphatic system. Um, so more and more information is coming out every year about this system and how crucial it is not only for swallowing, but also cognition. So some of the literature specific to head and neck actually talks about how cancer itself can cause lymphatic disruption. So just for anybody listening that, that doesn't know about the lymphatic system, I, I don't know how you explain it, Aiden, but I always explain it as like a highway system, right, that runs through our body to clear out toxins. So we've got our lymph nodes, which are like the green lights, and then the vessels, which are like the highway. So if we take out the green lights, there's traffic jams, right? Um, and the lymph nodes don't grow back. The lymph vessels can somewhat repair themselves, uh, but really we have to teach the body to, to move that traffic. And so uh, what's interesting is that with head and neck, there's actually a third of our body's lymph nodes in the head and neck. So odds are these patients are going to have some sort of lymphatic dysfunction, right? Because it's a very small area for all of, you know, a third of our body's lymph nodes to be in that region. And like I mentioned, some of the literature actually says that the cancer itself can cause dermal backflow. And so, you know, maybe it's the, the cancer compressing the lymph vessel, or uh, maybe it's actually in the lymph node itself, right? And many of these patients, they look fine externally, but when we scope them, we see that there's already internal edema, depending upon where the cancer's at and the staging, etc. Um, so there's that. But then like you alluded to, the treatments that are utilized for the cancer are also risk factors. So um, surgery, radiation, and some forms of chemo can actually cause lymphatic dysfunction. So of course, these patients are at a risk. And like I mentioned, when initially I was thinking these patients had internal lymphedema, uh, we didn't have research to back that up. But now Claire Jeans and her team in Australia have actually come out with new research that says that 97% of these patients do have internal lymphedema. And that the key fact being there that not every patient with internal lymphedema has external lymphedema. So, you know, you, your patient could look good externally. Um, and if we're not doing instrumental evaluations, we may, may be missing it. And, you know, I think 
like I had mentioned, both MBS and fees are very crucial for this patient population. I personally like to get some form of endoscopic imaging just because then we're able to, you know, look at not only at the function, but also the anatomy and blood flow and, and things like that, uh, tissue integrity, etc. And of course, that's just subjective. But I just like that view. But then, of course, with the MBS, I really like to look at all aspects of swallow, including doing an esophageal screen. Because, again, in the literature, we know that patients with head and neck cancer often present with esophageal issues down the road, which, again, when we're talking about pathophysiology, I think there is a multitude of reasons but I would hypothesize that one of which being those internal lymphatic changes. So I, I think we've been um, mentioning the research enough that I think unless there's anything else that you want to add at this point, we can jump into talking about some of, of these studies a little bit more in depth if um, that sounds good to you. Sure. Okay. So I think, you know, talking about that plateau that you were talking to, uh, that you had mentioned earlier, um, I think it's some of, and I'm not, you know, extremely well-versed in the literature, but I think one of the articles that is really interesting to me um, is that uh, it's called A Prospective Study of the Lymphedema and Fibrosis Continuum in Patients with Head and Neck Cancer by Ridner et al. in 2016. Are you familiar with that article? Yeah, the, the article by Dr. Reidner from Vanderbilt. Reidner, thank you. I am terrible with names, as people will probably find out. <laughs> um, what I think is interesting um, so much about this article is that, you know, um, and a little back, back information on this, um, there was 83 patients that they followed prior to receiving the radiation treatment and then at regular intervals until um, approximately 18 months after they had the radiation treatment. And what they found then is that there was kind of these two groups for the lymphedema and then fibrosis. There was the mild or the none, and then there was the moderate or severe or severe and they tended to kind of group up in either one of those. And what was really interesting, and I think maybe this kind of gets to that point that you're making about the plateau, is that for fibrosis, the peak of that um, fibro fibrotic, fibrotic process, excuse me, didn't occur until, you know, up to 12 months after they were done with treatment. And then for the internal and external lymphedema, it was a, a similar um, time frame, but a little bit sooner than 12 months. Yeah. And I think, um, again, we kind of talked about this, but, you know, everyone's lymphatic system is different, right? So the progression is going to be dependent upon a couple of things, at least in, in my opinion, from what I've learned in my clinical practice. And of course, working with PT and OT and other SLPs, but you mentioned it earlier, like, you know, a, another medical event, or let's say you have a patient, like I've had a lot of these patients, I'm sure you've had too, that they're working full time, or they have a family or other factors that kind of impact their ability to do um, self massage or exercise or, you know, just things that are going to help their lymphatic system. So um, the progression can really be dependent upon each individual person, not only from a physiological standpoint, but also other life factor. Uh, but I do really like that article by Dr. Reidner and her team because it does talk about the progression. And I think it, again, lends to why we as speech pathologists should be following these patients for, I don't want to say longer, but at least like checking in on them, right? Because if we are getting these programs established and we're seeing patients throughout treatment, and they do well, because a lot of times they do well, right? Um, and then they're done with treatment, and they're done with us, and we're like, okay, you're good to go, discharge. And then lymphedema sets in, right? Or it becomes exacerbated, and then they're having all these issues, and they're calling you. 
Aiden, what's going on? I was eating a cheeseburger last week and now I'm, you know, struggling to get down even small bites of bread. And that's, you know, that lymphatic component, right? It fluctuates. And um, again, when you talk to PT and OT who treat lower extremity extremity lymphedema or even upper extremity lymphedema, they'll tell you, you know, that the patients do have fluctuations in their their symptoms, right? So why would head and neck be any different? Kind of getting to that point too of, um, I, I think another point from this article that's interesting is that looking at the presence of that that lymphedema pre prior to getting any treatment, because again, that could maybe come, as you had said, maybe from the, the tumor, some kind of mass, it could be from surgery. Um, and what they found that is really too, any kind of that pre-external lymphedema or fibrosis didn't necessarily it wasn't predictive of what things were going to look like after the fact and other than internal lymphedema, which I think speaks to the, to the point of it's important that we do have these regular checkups um, at, at some kind of interval. And even if things are going great, it is likely important for us to check up, you know, six months, a year out. Yeah. Even, you know, I've had patients that they, when they're done, they're done. They're like, I don't, I hear you and I appreciate it, but I I don't want to come in for anything else. I don't want to have another MBS or fees or anything like that. So even just a phone call, right? Um, Just checking in to see how they're doing. And I think whether or not you're an SLP that wants to necessarily get involved in the lymphatic system, I will say that if you're recommending exercise and elevation, you already are impacting the lymph system. Um, That being said, I do think that we can play a really crucial role in, in at the very least, educating patients on it and advocating for services that are going to address the lymphatic system. I think with that too, it can be really difficult to get buy-in from patients, especially for those who have a little bit of difficulty or you know, they just are getting through it. They're trying hard. They have a little bit of that, um, you know, discomfort, but they're just trudging along. And and what I found, and I'd be interested to hear kind of what's worked for you to get that buy-in is really including um, various like the oncologist or the ENT that the patient is working with um, to really have them also explain the importance of looking at the swallow function that, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily how things are one month after treatment, we want to make sure that things are good at 12 months. And so really getting that that buy-in from the whole team that this is something that, you know, we want to all be on the same page about. Um, what's worked for you to get buy-in maybe from ENTs, oncologists, other members, you know, other SLPs that you've worked with? So I would say on the patient side, some of the things that have been beneficial or effective are showing images that I put together um, that kind of show the progression. Um, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but obviously we have the revised Patterson scale that we can use to assess internal edema, but at least to my knowledge, there's nothing standardized to assess or rate internal lymphatic changes to date versus, you know, external lymphedema, they have set staging, right? Um, So I just together some fees that show just like still images from fee studies that kind of show like a progression, at least from my standpoint, and really discussing that with the patient. You kind of mentioned this, but, you know, we want to make sure our patients, if we can, keep them eating and drinking whatever they want for as long as possible. And especially when we're seeing people that are younger and younger, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s with HPV-related head neck cancer, survival and prognosis is much better, which is awesome. The problem is that these people then are, are faced with, you know, dealing with these ramifications for, you know, maybe 40 to 50 to 60 years after their diagnosis. And so I'm really trying to 
hit home to them that this is something that they can be empowered to take action on um, and be proactive. And if they intervene earlier, hopefully their burden of management will be less. And typically people are pretty receptive to it. Of course, as you mentioned, you know, it's a lot of information and it's, I, I can't even imagine how traumatizing and stressful it is to be given a diagnosis that could be terminal. So not everybody is at a point where they can start to do this or um, really take something else, you know, as significant as lymphedema onto their plate. But just having us there as resources, I think it is huge. And like you mentioned, you know, patients are usually super grateful for that. On the interdisciplinary team side of things, in my own clinical practice, I really never had any any pushback. The ENTs and the radiation oncologists that I worked with honestly were amazing and were like, oh my gosh, yes, like let's include this. And I would actually get to uh, follow up immediately after the radiation oncologist had the initial consult with the head and neck patients. So it was really a unique experience and uh, really awesome because then, you know, after they gave their education, I was able to come in and talk about our role and the CLT. And so I didn't have a lot of, like I said, I didn't have a lot of pushback and they were very receptive to that. Now, like I mentioned, I've traveled the country the last couple of years talking about this topic and working with teams across the country. And I know other SLPs are really fighting to to create these types of protocols and programs. And so I think, you know, ultimately it comes down to communication, which as speech pathologists, you know, we talk about communication a lot, but it, it really comes down to communication and, and sitting down and having that authentic one-on-one conversation with whoever the decision maker is. So whether it's the radiation oncologist or head and neck surgeon, we are all typically in healthcare because we want to help help people, right? Um, and so typically the reason something isn't happening, at least in my opinion, is because of, you know, maybe time or financial barriers or processes. And so really just meeting with that decision maker and figuring out if they are on board with this from a clinical standpoint, what's the best way to get this implemented. So for example, we're talking a lot about being proactive from a dysphagia standpoint and lymphedema standpoint. Um, I've talked about this quite a bit on social media, but one of my good friends is one of the lead SLPs at Cleveland Clinic main campus. And she reached out a couple of years ago and was like, hey, you know, I'm seeing you talk about this lymphedema aspect. I think I want to try to get this started at our hospital system. And so if you've ever, you know, worked with the SLPs at Cleveland Clinic, they are seriously amazing. And their CLT, Manisha, is also incredible. And so I worked with them for about a year and a half period just trying to get their program started proactively, not only from a swallowing standpoint, but mainly on the lymphedema side. And they were able to get it implemented and that all came back to communication of meeting with the lead head neck surgeon, understanding what her concerns were, how she wanted things to run, and who all the key players were in getting this to become a seamless protocol where every patient was getting seen by speech pathologists and CLT and getting multi-modes of of care. So that was a long response to your short question, but hopefully that kind of gives some context that basically every every place is different, but I think ultimately it comes down to having, you know, good communication and being authentic about why you're wanting to implement this and, you know, coming armed with the research, but also meeting the other person where they're at, whether it be the patient or the other person on the interdisciplinary team. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of going to um summarize something that I heard Dr. Balafsi say and sort of editorialize at the same time where um, he says something to the effect of, you know, it's not really up to us what patients want to do. I think we can 
give them everything and the kitchen sink. We can tell them this are all the various things that we could do. Um, maybe they want everything at the beginning. Maybe they don't. It's not necessarily up for us to decide, but I think it's important for us to have this knowledge of, of the various ways that we can help patients or that, um, you know, the swallow can be impacted by head and neck cancer treatment and that we, we share that freely, willingly, and also are able to pull, push them in any kind of direction that they want to go. Because like you said, it is very difficult for a lot of patients. There's so much information. Um, you know, if they have radiation plus chemo plus other things they're worried about, maybe they have to stay, um, you know, in a, a stay in the city versus their home, which is two hours away during the week to receive treatment. You know, this is not necessarily something that they, they want to do at that time. Or, you know, when they're done with treatment, they need to go home and go back to work because they didn't work for six to eight weeks. These are all really important things, I think, for us to consider because I think we can hear all of this think, wow, this is great. This is what every patient needs. And I think sometimes we can get a little too excited um, because I think, you know, like you said, we want we want to help people, especially when we think we've kind of found this that can really be impactful. But it's important to remember that each patient is, you know, their own individual, individualized case, individualized personality, but it's still, I think, good for us to to try and we should. Um, because I think the more that we do, the the better better it'll be. Going off that topic, I have two two patient examples to kind of um, demonstrate the wide range of the continuum. So I recently had actually an SLP reach out to me on Instagram who had had neck cancer herself, and she found me through Michelle Dawson, who's a friend of mine who's also an SLP, and reached out and was like, "Hey, I think I have head neck lymphedema." And I was told to reach out to you. So we Zoomed and based on her symptoms and just, of course, you know, the risk that we know that she has from the literature and just looking at her even over Zoom, it appeared that she had external swelling in her face. Um, And then I suspected she probably had an internal lymphedema as well. So we talked about different treatment options and modalities, et cetera. Um, And she just reached out to me after getting treatment from a CLT and trying different modalities and trying techniques that I had taught her just over Zoom while she's waiting to get in with other therapists. And she's already seen significant improvement, improvement in her external measurements with her CLT, as well as just in how she feels overall as a human being, which is really incredible. So, you know, sometimes you have people like that, that they really want the information. And, you know, she was told by her doctor, you're young, you're going to be fine. Like, you don't need therapy, even though she's like, I really want to get into therapy versus other patients. Like I was consulted on a patient that was a total laryngectomy. This was a few months ago, and he was having some severe issues that the SLP and I believe to be lymphatic related. And I flew there and went and met with him. And, you know, he was so, you know, I don't want to necessarily categorize how he was feeling, but it appeared that he was just so burnt out with the whole situation that he did not want any other, anything else on his plate. Like he told me, I appreciate you coming to talk to me, but I'm not going to do anything else at this point. I want to be done with all of this and I want to get back to living my life. So even though the members of his care team really believed that his the severe issues that he were having he was having were related to lymphatics, he just wasn't in a place where he was going to be able to take on anything else. And so, you know, I agree with you 100%. I think it's our job as healthcare professionals to be there for our patients and give the information and if they're not at a place where they want to follow 
everything that we're recommending, that's totally okay. You know, it's their choice as as individuals to make decisions that are best for them. Okay, so what about what would you say for, you know, SLPs that, you know, may may be listening who this is not an area that they're practicing in, or they're not even interested in practicing in? What do you think would be kind of a handful of key takeaways for them just related to the importance of the lymphatic system and dysphagia in this population? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, a lot of people are actually seeing patients with head and neck cancer, even just every now and again, whether it's in home health or acute care. Um, So you may not necessarily be interested or have the time and resources to go get all of this training. Um, Like you mentioned, I think the biggest key is one to know the prevalence. Like I mentioned, Claire Jeans and her team in Australia have determined that 97% of these patients have internal lymphedema. So if you're seeing a head neck patient, the odds are they most likely have lymphatic dysfunction. And so I think as speech pathologists, and and you mentioned this, you know, the progression, the patient might be doing fine until something else happens. Even let's say you're seeing a patient in home health and they are doing overall pretty okay. But you know that they have a history of head neck cancer and you're palpating them. You're like, huh, this tissue feels kind of wacky. (laughs) You know, it's not going to hurt to talk to the patient about potentially seeking lymphatic services from PT and OT. I think um, we can be documenting the correlation between the lymphatic system and what we're seeing with dysphagia, whether it be under fluoro or with fees, you know, again, we wouldn't be diagnosing lymphedema, but we can definitely talk about the literature, right? We can talk about the prevalence. We can talk about our clinical opinion. And like I mentioned, the current research discussing the prevalence and the correlation between the lymphatic system and dysphagia. And I think that we can be talking in our documentation about what we would recommend. So whatever modes of treatment, or if you don't feel comfortable talking about that, um, at least talking about your recommendations for further evaluation with a certified lymphedema therapist. So I have a lot of friends in acute care that reach out and say, you know, I don't see this patient population all the time, but I've had one today that had, you know, we did an MBS and I was seeing X, Y, and Z, like, what would you have done? And I was just recommend, you know, talking to the patient about the fact that um, there is treatment out there and putting it in your notes, the the research and your recommendations for further evaluation from somebody that really knows about the lymphatic system. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, makes great sense just because our, our field is so broad. And I think that's how there's various, you know, things, uh, different areas of our scope of practice that I'm not as well versed in, um, just based on kind of where my career has taken me. But I think it's still important that we know when to refer and, and who to refer to. Because I think when we're talking to the medical team, whether that be you know on the acute side or the primary care doctor or something where you see this patient for a totally unrelated reason, um, I, I think it's really great if we're able to um, you know pick up on some of these other issues and make those appropriate referrals. Because I, I think so often, I'm sure you have your stories where that's happened, where you pick up on something very small that a patient told you during like a clinical interview you start pulling that thread and you uncover this whole other issue unrelated to why they're sitting in front of you. But ultimately that becomes the whole reason that you see them and kind of what ends up making the big difference. So I think, yeah, these, these things that maybe someone will never um, use in their daily practice are still really, really important for us to all be aware of. Definitely. And if you are in those settings and um, you know, you're not necessarily wanting to, 
like, or you're, you're wanting to help, but you don't necessarily know where to start. Like I mentioned earlier, some of what we're already recommending does help address the lymphatic system. You know, typically in the lymphatic literature, they recommend people with lymphedema to participate in exercise, elevation, and compression. And so we're already recommending exercise, right, with our swallowing exercises, um, bolus-driven techniques, and elevation is easy, right? Most of our patients are upright already, so recommending that they are sleeping upright if they're not already is another good thing. Diaphragmatic breathing is an easy one that most of us are already recommending, of course, we know that oral care is really crucial for these patients um, and patients in general that have dysphagia. So a lot of what we're doing already is starting to help get that system working. But like I said, I, I do think collaborating with PT and OT or somebody that's certified in lymphedema is is a really great thing that we can advocate for. Absolutely. Well, any final thoughts that you have on lymphedema, dysphagia, head and neck cancer? We kind of covered, we did cover a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, I think that ultimately, you actually said it at the very beginning of the podcast, and this has just been my my biggest thing as an SLP is really just trying to identify the pathophysiology behind what we're doing. And so obviously, as it relates to head and neck cancer, we've said this, but you know, we believe that lymphedema is a huge correlation between the acute and chronic changes that these patients experience, but really it goes for all patients that we really as speech pathologists have, in my opinion, a duty to be trying to determine what the pathophysiology is. And then when we do determine what that is, um, you know, assessing the current research to figure out what is going to be the best mode of treatment and then really talking to our patients about what their goals are. Because like you mentioned, you know, every patient's different. And I've had those experiences specifically with the head and neck population where you want it so bad. Like you you know the things that need to be done to get better and, and you care so much about your patient and you want them to get better. And sometimes they're just not in a place where, they um, are able to participate in therapy or maybe do all the things you're recommending. So, you know, that can be challenging, not only because, you know, I, there's a variety of reasons why that can be challenging, but I think it's just important for us to, one, identify pathophysiology, understand the current literature, but then truly understand what it is that our patients are wanting. The last thing I would say is that if you are going to work with this patient population or are already working with this patient population, um, to have a good support system built around you and, you know, ways to kind of decompress yourself. It's, it's, it's a lot to work with this patient population. It's very rewarding, but it can also be really hard emotionally. There's been a lot of days where, you know, I've come home from work and it's been difficult because you have patients that don't make it or, you know, these patients are at an extremely high risk for suicide, like I mentioned with my patient experience earlier. And so that can be really difficult when you are doing everything that you can to try to help improve the lives of these patients. And as you know, because you work with this patient population, some of this is out of our control. So, you know, just seeking support yourself. I um, am very open that I have been in counseling for a long time. And it's good to have, in my opinion, those external sources yourself of support so you can kind of decompress and you can um, really give from a, a full cup. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a really important point because it's something that I never anticipated um, getting into this field. Um, some of the, the weight of what we would deal with just interpersonally with our patients and kind of really experiencing that part of their own humanity and kind of seeing it in yourself. So I'm sure it, 
at some point down the line in the podcast, I want to sh- talk a little bit about that because it is, I mean, it's, it's in incredible um, in negative and positive ways, <laughs> the, the people that we meet and what we see them through and help them through. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and I will make sure to link um, various ways that people could get linked up with your, your social. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of the Speech Path Pod. I'm very excited for you all to hear some of the interviews I've been working on in the last month, and I can't wait to hear feedback from the listeners.